Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. Good morning, everyone. How many of you here in your family dynamic are the eldest in the sibling chain? Love to see your hands. Okay, so fair representation. How many of you here in your family dynamic or sibling chain are the youngest in your family? Put up your hand. Okay, this will be very interesting. I happen to be the youngest in my family, uh, family chain. When you're between, I don't know, 8 and 15, relatively, generally the youngest of the siblings kind of chase the eldest around. And you kind of want to be in their aura. And sometimes that doesn't go well. So there's a phrase that's constantly used at times from the eldest to the youngest when they're getting annoying or they're not acting the way that they should, or they're running around and following them around their friends or seeing them at school. And usually that phrase is what? Well, other than get lost, which would be the first one, it's usually, would you just grow up? Could you just grow up? And usually, since I heard that often, And since I'm the youngest, in my head I'm going, well, yeah, I am growing up. I know physically I'm changing. I know emotionally I'm changing. I know intellectually I'm changing. Like, what are you really saying when when my brothers used to say, just grow up? What they were saying was, can you start to mature in and around my friends who are older than you? Is there a level of maturity? Can you start becoming more mature? This is exactly what James is saying in the book of James. He is actually saying to us, it's time to grow up. It's time to mature. It's very much the heart of the writer James to the early church. Actually, James, the book of James is written 46 to 48 AD. It's the earliest book in the canon of the New Testament. What's unique about the writing of this book is that he doesn't talk at all about doctrine like Paul. And so when you read it, it's extremely practical. One of the reasons why it's extremely practical because everyone was within the generation who had seen and saw Jesus. They never talked about things like the resurrection or the crucifixion or the idea or the nature of salvation. Jesus is only mentioned twice in the the book of James. 
It's so interesting why this is so. Because everyone that he was writing to believed. And there are things that we're going to see in the writing of James that's so critical and consistent to what we experience here today. But he's saying it's time to mature. It's time to grow up. Now it's interesting if you think about it this way. In Protestant churches, one of the things that we love to see are people coming to faith. And part of that coming to faith, because the scriptures indicate that when you come to faith, even the heavens rejoice. And we talk a lot about that. We focus a lot about that. Here's my question to you. How much do we focus on Christians maturing? How much do we focus on how much are you growing in your faith? Because James is acutely aware of what was happening 15 years later when most everyone he was writing to saw and heard and experienced, some even firsthand who knew Jesus himself. Because there was no debate that Jesus was, was God, was Christ, was the Messiah. And yet in this drift, this whole book of James for five chapters is solely about Christians needing to grow. Not only needing to grow, what he says is, when you think about your faith, and so next week, the pivotal part of the book of James will be highlighted. It was also highlighted in chapter 1, verse 26. Your faith reflects works. It lives in harmony. It's like two sides to a coin. If you say you believe, you behave in relation to your belief. It's so much so a part of the book of James. When we looked at chapter 1 in the last three weeks as we looked at chapter 1, so appreciative of the teaching of Jonathan. Because he started to move into the series like James where he says, you say you're mature in faith, let me show you three marks, three tests of maturity, and it's seen in chapter 1. And we've already talked about some of those tests of faith or marks of faith that cause us to mature, even today. What was the first one in chapter 1? First one was joyful in trials. Actually, in the Greek, it literally means, it's very interesting here, when he says, when you face trials, brothers and sisters, it produces perseverance and patience. What he's saying is your trials that you're facing will cause you this inner characteristic of being patient. But you need also that patience to live through those trials. And so if you don't face the trial and, and carry that trial with patience, you won't produce the patience when the trial comes again to cause you to challenge your faith. And so that's a mark. That's a characteristic of those who mature in their faith. So the question is, are you maturing in the trials that you are facing? And what do we know about all of us here today? What's one of the most common characteristics that unite us all? 
Trials. Trials. But then he turns this and he says, as it produces your patience, you're also going to face temptation. (laughs) It's a wonderful movement of his thinking. And he says, as you face this temptation that doesn't come from God, though as you are under trial, you gain a level of patience so that you can persevere through that trial, you're going to face temptations. And those temptations will come, which allows you in the strength of the trial to give you patience so that you're patient enough through the temptation to do what? Because God always provides a way out. You need to be patient, not only through the trial, you actually need to be patient through the temptation to sustain yourself because God always provides a way out. So the question you've got to ask, are you triumphant in temptation? It's a mark of maturity. It's a mark of your spiritual growth. It's James calling us to us, grow up, (laughs) grow up. Now here's my confession to you. I've been a Christian, like some that have already been highlighted, I've moved from one tradition into the evangelical Protestant tradition, an expression of a personal relationship with God. And it's interesting to me, after 36 years of that, I'm amazed internally at times when I look back at the journey and go, man, you're so immature, dude. (laughs) I thought I'd be further along in my journey of maturity being more like Christ. Sometimes it's staggering. And then there are other times I look back on on the journey of my faith and I, I see some of the evidence of it and I go, wow. That's pretty cool. God, I see some of these victories. I see a change in the way that I look at things and do things. And so this idea of triumphant and temptation is very much a part of the mark of who we are. But then he turns it in the end of chapter 1 and he says this, living the truth, he says, do not just be what? Hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. And the question he is asking is, are you growing? Are you growing in the truth of the word of God in your life? Are you not just hearing that? Is it coming out? Is it the evidence in your life? Because your life is the evidence or the integrity of your message. And are you growing in that? Your look is really the look I think James was looking for. Like, like, like James isn't this pithy kind of thing. It's actually, it's in your grill and in your face. That's what James and how he writes. He's not pulling punches here. He's not saying, hey, I'm going to make you feel good about it. He's saying, listen, Hebrew Christians, because for the most part, they were Hebrew Christians. He now had taken over because in Acts chapter two, what, or Acts chapter twelve, what happened? James and Peter were crucified, and 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 James, James the, the apostle, James 
takes over as the half-brother. He's one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. We're now 13 years later. In Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5, we see the church come alive. And what did they do? They gathered together. They sold everything. They cared for those who were widows. They ate together. They broke bread together. They persevered through trials. They did all these things together. And all of a sudden, we're 13 years because at 5, 6, 7 to 12, Stephen gets martyred. Philip then starts preaching because in the book of Acts, it says, what to the church? Go preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, to Judea, Samaria, uh, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts. And that's what happened. A dispersion came to the church in Jerusalem. So it was spread out all over it. And James is writing this letter. It's called the General Epistles. It's one of the eight. So he writes this letter that it's formed not to specific individuals or the church. And it was circulated in the early church because Christians were dispersed all over and outside of from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and the outermost parts. And he was seeing a drift. And there was challenges to faith. And they were confronted about who they were. And they were losing and missing some of the mark. And yet here they were, 10, 12 years old in faith. And they were drifting in the practice of maturation or maturing in their faith. And James hits hard and says, okay, you call yourself a Christian. Here are the marks. What do you think? So then he moves his thinking into chapter 2. Loving without prejudice. It's a beautiful thing. Because we think we live in a discriminatory world today. It was nothing like the first century. The discrimination that occurred in the first century was socioeconomic, it was cultural, it was gender. There were such wars happening and segregation and separation that when he writes this letter, what was so unique about the church at that time in the first century is what's so unique about the church here in the 21st century. The one thing that showed the world. Because he's not writing to the world. In chapter 2 he says, my brethren. He does it twice in chapter 2. He's talking to Christians. What he's talking about is the sins of the saints. And man, we have lots of sins. What he's saying to the church, the early church, is we have some issues that are unlike the world. We've allowed the world to drift in into the way that we look at one another. Because what did Jesus say, our Lord, his half-brother? Imagine living. Imagine living with a brother who is perfect. Right? Just think about that for a second. All of a sudden you hear, hey, who broke the clay pot in the back corner? Certainly no, it wasn't Jesus. Just think about what James is saying here. He's saying something really interesting to the church because he remembers his half-brother who said to everyone, people will know you are mine because of your what? Your love for one another. And the unity of the love of the brethren, of the church, 
became so uniquely different to everyone else in that culture. Romans and Greeks were astounded because the church was unified. Why? Because males and females sat beside each other. Greeks and Gentiles, slave and free. There was something so unique about the church. Why? Why is that so? Because it's built on a command and the promise of God. It is an expression of God himself. What's his expression? There's a saying, Billy Graham has used it, it's been often quoted. The ground is even at the foot of the cross. I expected an amen for that. The ground is even at the foot of the cross. It's not discriminatory. The gospel is not discriminatory. God even himself in the Old Testament said what? I am the Lord your God. I discriminate against no one. And God is not discriminatory. Actually, Jesus himself proved that in his existence. He went on to teach about it. He said, you can lay all the law and the prophets on these two commands. Love God with all your heart and love one another. Love your enemy as yourself. And what did Jesus do? Let's just think through that. He was at the synagogue. And he was, he was there. And an old widow comes and drops two mites having followed a bunch of rich people who would drop their money in the synagogue. So in the synagogue, there used to be kind of this metal horn. So when you walked in the synagogue, you would drop your money, and it'd go cling, 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 cling down. The... And the disciples were there with Jesus, and they had been watching all these rich people drop their money and cling, 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 cling. And then an old woman comes with two mites, half a cent, and he drop, she drops it in. Clink, clink. And the disciples make a comment to Jesus. Like, oh wow, just look at what she gave. And this is where Jesus turns and he starts to show us how level we are at the cross. He says to them, listen, you're judging the outside. That woman, that woman gave her meal tomorrow, in essence. The rich people that you heard giving everything, you see, God looks at the heart. And they were staggered with that thought. What happened in Samaria? John chapter 4. John chapter 4, all of a sudden, Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman who had five husbands. And, she declare, and he declares to her, here's your background. The disciples were away and they come back and they say to Jesus, like, what are you doing talking to a woman and talking to a Samaritan and talking to a woman who's been married five times with a, a man she's not married to now? <laughs> what did Jesus say? I see the heart. And he touched her heart. And he understood what occurred, what was occurring in her heart. And he taught her what worship is. It's worshiping in spirit and in truth. 
You see, Jesus himself illustrates the very truth that God has no discrimination and the Lord has none himself because he is the fullness of God in deity. So let's look at the text. This is exactly what James does. He centers us. He says, my brothers and sisters, brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Actually, the Greek, doesn't re- the Greek renders this way better. And so let me kind of t- tell you what the Greek says here. So what it says is this. It's in the imperative. Stop holding your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ glorious. I'll talk about this in a second. And show no partiality. What he's saying is your faith in Jesus Christ in the glorious. And that word glorious, he takes a Hebrew word, which is the Shekinah. That comes from when Moses went to the the Decalogue, got the Ten Commandments, came down, his face was glowing. It's the Shekinah glory of God that came upon him. And people saw the evidence of him being face to face with God himself. It's the same when they use the phraseology of the Shekinah, when God in his fullness would, be, would lead the children of Israel in the pillar by day and, 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 and by night. It's the same Shekinah glory when the temple, in the inside of the temple, when the priests would meet, the one priest once a year would meet God in the Holy of Holies. The Shekinah of God lived there, was there. And what he's saying is, when, brothers, stop right now. In your faith, in the Lord Jesus glorious, in the Shekinah of the fullness of God, show no discrimination, no partiality. What he's saying here is they're in conflict. You cannot believe in faith in God and show partiality. It's a contradiction. It's an inconsistency. It shouldn't and doesn't exist. Why? Because Jesus himself shows no partiality, no favoritism. God himself does not as well. And so when he says this, it's an incredibly, it is the command and the theological root for us when we understand maturity in our faith, do we show favoritism? Discrimination. Snobbery is a transliteration. And he says, if you show that, it is inconsistent with someone who calls themselves or in a relationship with the glorious. Think about that. One of the churches I was a pastor in, a, uh, a man came in the back, back row, obviously was homeless, and he used to sleep during my sermons. One of the elders came to me and go, we got to get this guy out of here. And I said, no, this is the only place he gets a good rest. And if I happen to put him to sleep, Awesome. 
There is no discrimination. The church has to be unique. And in our world now, are we not supposed to be unique? Unlike the culture. And yet we let the cultural milieu make its way here. Why? Because this idea of favoritism, we swipe left and right all day long. And that's not what the scriptures are saying here. And I'm so grateful. As I said, I didn't come from a Christian home. And I came with all that garbage of living inconsistent of God. And when I came to the foot of the cross and realized it was level, that God actually loved me and gave his life for me and allowed someone like me to be an heir. And people didn't come around me and judge me. You know that look. Who dressed up this Sunday? Who didn't? What was she wearing? Boy, that guy's got lots of tattoos. Wow, they had long hair. Well, how come they have too short a hair? And constantly we do those things. Or you come into the church and you go, hmm, who's sitting in my seats? See, that happened back then. In the synagogue, and this is the only, so, so when we read here, in the synagogue, in the assembly, this is the only place where the word synagogue is used. Because the name for the church started to change after James. But they were meeting in the synagogue, and that's where people actually paid for their seats. And the wealthy paid for their seats. And so when he gets to this illustration, he says, let me, let me take a look. He says, for instance, if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in bright clothes and a poor man in dirty clothes also comes in and you pay special attention to the one wearing the bright clothes and say, hey, sit in the first row. Now, there's lots of empty seats in the first row here, right? But back then, that's where the rich sat. That's where they purchased their seats. And he says, when you sit there, and you make special, special attention to this person wearing the bright clothes. You sit here in this good place, but a poor person comes in and you, stand, and you look at them and you stand over them and say, sit by the footstool on the ground or go to the back corner. Have you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? That's what he said. So what's the question? He's not saying... How you treated the rich was inappropriate. What he was saying is you didn't treat the poor in the same manner. You've chosen. And in that distinction, it reveals an evil motive. And that evil motive talks about something that's happening in your heart. And you've got to look at what's happening in your heart. Why? Because God doesn't judge the outside. He judges the inside. He judges your heart. But what do men do? And the scripture is littered from the calling of David all the way through the New Testament of man continually judging the outside of man. 
And God's showing the opposite by looking at the heart of humanity. And this is what he's saying here. If you truly are one who has a relationship with the glorious, you will look and and act and live and behave and see what he sees. That's a reflection of your faith. Your faith is very much lived out in your behavior. And you need to grow in this area. Because 10 years earlier, guess what? They waited for each other at dinner. The rich pooled the money with the poor. They cared for the widows. They cared for, and, and they were meeting together and everything was cool. 10 or 12 years later, they were already drifting to an attitude. An attitude that was inconsistent with their belief. And he says, you want to see a mark of your maturity? Are you loving people without prejudice? So he says, that's the command. Favoritism will corrupt a church. It will corrupt you. Second thing, he says, listen, my beloved brothers. Did not God chose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs for the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into the court? Do they not blaspheme the good name by which you have been called? There are three questions, all rhetorical, with the idea that they would affirm yes. For all three of these questions. Your judgment is misdirected, he's saying. It's illustrated here. And so if you are judging, he goes, just use rational thinking. Just rationally look at this. God says in the imperative, a command, then he gives you three rational ideas. First one is this. Take a look. Didn't the scriptures of themselves say that that those who are poor are rich in spirit, and the kingdom is for those who are poor? They all knew that. Of course, that's true. Did he not also say, literally, in the, in the terminology is here, because he was talking to those that believe. What he was saying is, someone who was disbelieving coming into the synagogue, and now he's saying, aren't those the same people that are taking you to court? What was happening at that time in Jerusalem is the wealthy Hebrews were taking and taking land from those who were poor. 44, 45, actually almost up to 65, this whole wealth control power. What occurred from 65 to 70 was that the Roman government had enough. And they came in and and crushed the temple because what was happening is this legitimacy sense of the rich getting richer and the poor not getting poorer and the fighting, and in, in, they had enough. But he was saying, don't they even take you to court? Like, why are you putting them in a place of honor? But they were doing that. And they, then he says, don't they even blaspheme? Don't they even mock you out in the world? Make funny of you as Christians, and yet they blaspheme the name of Christ, and yet here you are putting them in a place of honor and rejecting those. When you look at the outer appearance, you reject them because you think, what, what can they do for me? Because that's what he starts to talk about. He says, look. Look at what's happening inside of you to make the decision that you're making. Then the third. And then he goes and he gives you the principle of love. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. 
Wow. And are convicted by the law as violators. And then he goes on to illustrate it going, hey, listen, if you keep all the law yet stumble on one part, if you are adulterous one time, or if you're thinking or emotively thinking about that, if you were hatred in your heart and you committed murder, because he's going back to what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, the royal law, the royal decree came, lay all the law and the prophets on these two commands. Love God with all your heart and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. It is the application of the vertical relationship living out horizontally. We are who we are as a result of our vertical relationship with God and how we live towards other people. And if that is not consistent, he is raising the challenge to those who were Christian to mature, to grow up in this area. It is not consistent with what it is to be a follower because it is level at the foot of the cross. And he said, love must lead you. Love for God and love for others. Then he closes this, and then I'll close So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is a unique, because he's talking to the brethren. What he's saying is this. As you are evaluating the practice of your life, as you're looking in the mirror and you're looking at yourself going, okay, do I... Do I love with prejudice? If I do, if I'm judging, because that's what he's saying, you're judging the inner action. Actually, the literal literally means face and conclusion. The idea is you look at the face and you draw a conclusion. That's the Greek phrase here. He says, if you're doing that, you're doing that and it is sin. And if you're doing that, it's revealing these evil motives. What you're doing is showing no mercy. And then he flips this. Now this is staggering. Just think about this. He says, how you show mercy, God will judge you in the same capacity. Now that's interesting. What he's saying here is not about your salvation. But what he's saying is that God judges us for what we do in our bodies when we call ourselves to be Christian. What do you do in your heart? What do you do with your time and your talents and your energy and your life? What do you do in your behavior? How do you treat other people? And he says, if you act, act merciless, if you show a lack of mercy in our prejudice, God has the capacity to judge you in the same way. That is overwhelming to me. See what I mean when I say James doesn't pull any punches? He's saying you've got to mature. Why was he doing this? Because he knew somehow under the inspiration of God that a time was coming when the church was going to be persecuted to the core. People were going to die for the faith. By the thousands. 
And he was telling the church to be ready. And he was telling them that your faith in practice reveals the heart condition to God and the expression of that to those who are your brothers and sisters around you. What I love about this place is this should be a place that has no boundary to culture, has no boundary to gender at the foot of the cross, has no boundary to socioeconomic, what school you went to, what you do, what you do for work. We are united in one as Christians who love the glorious together. And people, when they come here, should see that in its fullest. Why? Because we've received that. We've received it. If you are here, because he's talking to those who believe, not to those who, who don't believe, and he's not talking to the culture. Because we don't have that expectation of the culture. Why would we? He's talking about this place. Let me end with this. Sorry, I'm a little... I'm like Jonathan. I'm sorry. Um, early in the 16th, 17th century in Britain you used to have to pay for your seats the wealthy would go to church and there was a man named John Wesley John Wesley was going out to all the miners and wanting to bring them to church and the church said nah, sorry, you can't bring, John, can't bring the miners here So what did John Wesley do? John Wesley went out to the mines and he went out into the fields and he preached to thousands. Miners with coal on their faces would hear the Wesleyan revivals and as they were hearing John Wesley, their faces would turn white from the tears that they had because they heard it was level at the cross. And a man named Booth became a minister in the Wesleyan movement. Then in the middle of the 18th century, just a hundred years later in England, guess what happened there? He had a heart for those who were poor and would try to bring them in the church and the church kicked them out. Guess what Booth did? He started the Salvation Army. Because he went with the fact that you have to be unified and God cares for those all, regardless of their status, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of what school, tattoos, non-tattoos, hair, long hair, regardless, it's level at the foot of the cross. That's the mark of a maturing Christian and that is the mark of a healthy church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for this privilege to be part of the body of Christ here. Thank you for the ministry at NAC, but thank you fundamentally for the glorious. That you've reached down in the hearts and minds of people and drawn us to yourself so that we can have a relationship with you. And that your heart's desire is for your people to become heirs co-heirs with Christ and that the, the church should be unique, functional body of the living glorious the Shekinah, the glory of God as his people gather together living out what it is to be Christian and my prayer is for Nak and for us, whatever comes from me Lord 
doesn't come from you, wipe it from our minds. But whatever comes from you that is good, right, pure, and holy, put it into our hearts so that we can live for you, not only just hearers, but doers, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.